As we record this episode, many of us just finished up our Thanksgiving gatherings last week. And now, on to the winter festivities that include Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, or even St. Lucia Day, Winter Solstice, or Three Kings Day. Whatever you celebrate, my guess is it involves food. So in this episode, Mike and I chat about our own food traditions, and in the stretch it takes, I write about how those traditions have evolved and become new and different over the years. But before we do that, thanks for listening. I'm Emily Morgan, and I've got Mike here with me. Hello. We've been doing this for a while with over 75 episodes under our belts, and we appreciate you coming along for the adventure. If you want to help us keep going, please rate, review, and rave about our podcast. Your words mean a lot to us. Not asking for money, just words. So, Mike, here we are again, sitting down for a little chat. Right, about the last episode, which was a revisit to uh, one from uh, a little further in the past about uh, traditions that have something to do with food. And, man, I'm still full from Thanksgiving. How do you feel? Our traditions had a lot of food with them this time. <laughs> it was it was good food. I found it really difficult not to eat too much of it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, I was in the car with one of our daughters and before Thanksgiving, and I was mentioning some new things that I was going to introduce for the you know, table for Thanksgiving. And she she got a little riled. She was like, well, wait, 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 are, are we not going to have this? Are we not going to have that? And I was like, no, 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 don't worry. I'm still going to have some of the old things. I won't take those away. I just want to add some new things in to see if we can kind of switch it up a little bit. And I have to say that uh, most of the new things that I introduced did not get a pass. I mean, they did get a pass. They don't want those. They just want the old-fashioned yeah food traditions that we've always had. This idea of being inextricably bound, you know, comes to mind. There are certain food traditions, particularly ones that go back more than a generation, that seem like they would always be missed if they weren't there. Yeah. Um, We did very early on in our food traditions get rid of the green bean casserole with the cream of mushroom soup and all that. So that's been gone for a long time. And I use an Ina Garten recipe with uh, green beans and sage, and they're just more like pretty plain garlic and sage, and everybody likes those. So at least we've moved on in one sense of the word. It's an evolved version, and I think a lot of those recipes from the maybe 40s, 50s, and 60s, maybe it's time for them to have evolved. Yeah. (laughs) So, Mike, let's talk a little bit about your food traditions growing up. What about your, your things that you remember pretty strongly? As far as holidays are concerned, the big one is a certain kind of yeast roll that my grandmother, who was born in uh, 1901, uh, popularized across the family. Now, I I don't know where she got it, but she now is in the uh, oral tradition of my family as being the origin of Granny Lou's rolls. And they're wonderful. And I have to say, I was fortunate enough to watch her make them and learn how to make them so that I could carry that tradition on. And nobody's unhappy about that. And then improve upon it, which is just fascinating. Yeah, yeah. If high-end bottled water seems to be your secret to making even better rolls than Granny Lou's rolls. Yeah, we we have a daughter who uh, lived in New York City, and she tells me that the the reason why pizza crust in New Jersey is so good is because they import New York City water. And who would have thought that New York City had the best water? Tap water. Their tap water is amazing. Um, I I always noticed it when we would go visit. It was just so good. And um, that seems to make the pizza crust better 
in New Jersey when they import it. So I was like, well, okay, I, I don't have New York City tap water, but I do buy bottled water, and I use that when I'm making the yeast to rise. Another one high on the list was giblet gravy, uh, gravy made with all the right things and ways. And it, I'm still a gravy fan today. I think I may be the only one in the family who is. <laughs> and then there was this frozen sort of salady, desserty thing, cherry cups that have cherries and walnuts and uh, cream cheese, right? Mm-hmm. I think so. It was served as a salad. It really could have counted as a dessert. Yeah. Yeah. It was made in cupcake liners, like little cupcakes. That's what it looked like. It was good, though. I mean, I, I can't say that I didn't like that. I mean, it, I enjoyed it, but we didn't carry that tradition on. No, no. One that we have brought forward from my dad is uh, bourbon balls as a dessert item. I think there may have been a little extra splash of bourbon in there, here yeah. and there. And then one that came from his mother, my paternal grandmother, um, boiled custard, or as they'd say in Tennessee, bold custard. And it always had, as far as my grandmother, who was a teetotaling Methodist, it always had flavoring. Now, it looked like uh, vanilla flavoring, but it wasn't. It was some of the stuff that came from over on the bourbon balls side. (laughs) Yeah, and because I didn't know your grandmother on that side, I never did get the knack of making boiled custard. I I have tried it. But uh, if anybody who's listening knows a good recipe for boiled custard and really knows how to make it, uh, let me know. Send it on over to me. And in defense of my grandmother, apparently since it's got raw egg in it, adding alcohol to that is a safety thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. My food traditions included my Greek grandmother's pita. We called it pita, but it's actually teropita. Um, didn't have any spinach in it, so it wasn't spanakopita. And um, that's one that we often make during the holidays. Usually I have it like the day or two after Thanksgiving, but we just had so many leftovers, there was no room for that. I just, we just ate leftovers. And my other grandmother, it was a steamed pudding with a hard sauce. I have her recipe for that. Lots of pies and desserts. And my mom had a sausage stuffing that she made that we all liked. We kind of do that. And she also made this thing, which our kids always called miracle salad, which is, uh, I know you all have seen it. It's made with jello and cottage cheese and Cool Whip and mandarin oranges and pineapple. And, you know, (laughs) who knows, I mean, where that even came from. I think that was one of those 50s, 60s things. It has all the ingredients that, uh, you know, would have been popularized then, would have started, you know, becoming a big deal in the 50s. Yeah. So, yeah. And our kids love it. And they're unhappy if we don't have it on the uh, menu. So it still has, and they call it, and they call it miracle because my son was like, it's a miracle. It's so yummy. So doesn't contain miracle whip, just to be clear. No, just cool whip. He should have called it the cool salad, I suppose. So what's your family favorite food? I mean, I would love to hear from you about your favorite family food. And I love recipes. So if you want to send those over to me by emailing me at grandlifeconnection at gmail.com, I would love that. Um, or just share it on Facebook, put it on your on the Facebook posts and give it to everybody. So that would be great. Mike, out of all of those foods we just talked about, what would be your favorite? It's no contest. It's Granny Lou's yeast rolls. And my favorite as well, really, I have to say. But my family stuff uh, is basically mac and cheese and pita. We usually have mac and cheese uh, on Thanksgiving Day. Pita, something called soap said soup, which is basically avgo limono soup, if any of you have had that. Um, 
and all potatoes in any form because I, I do on my other side of the family have Irish blood and it's the Irish blood I think that always makes me want potatoes. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the foods you cannot stand or where you were in a situation where there was not an alternative and you had to eat it, even though you didn't want to eat it. What about you, Mike? Well, we'd have to leave the domain of the holidays for this because over time, I think that winnowing you talked about where the, the less desirable foods get dropped and the great ones get kept means that pretty much only great food stays in, in or stays with family holiday traditions mm-hmm. for the most part. Although um, I, I, I really, the giblet gravy, I never understood because it had like eggs in it, like floating around in it. And this is a problem because why? <laughs> yeah, I just, I couldn't get on board with it that. I just didn't more, understand it. It makes it more honest. It's definitely honest, but I'd never heard of it before. If, yeah, okay. if you listeners have, please let me know. So my food problem was the fact that uh, growing up, my mom always made one night a week fried chicken livers. Gag. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, afraid so. <laughs> now, there was this one. I, I mean, chicken livers are kind of s- semi-standard, semi-normal, I think, even for Southern families. I'm not sure about beef tongue. And we did have beef tongue once. And I'm afraid that I remember that it was my request. I thought that it would be a cool thing to try. I was wrong. (laughs) Very, very wrong. That sounds delightful. (laughs) I don't think I've ever had beef tongue. I I think I remember one time having tripe or trying or looking it up or bringing it home or something, but no. No, the problem with beef tongue starts with the way it's presented in the plastic-wrapped styrofoam tray. (laughs) And I'll just leave it there. (laughs) We got it at the uh, corner supermarket. I mean, I grew up in a small southern town. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that unique or special, except we didn't do it. And Mm. after that, we didn't do it anymore. (laughs) Well, that's good. You know, one time I was in Ukraine, and I was with a a group of people who wanted to treat us to a real Ukrainian meal. And so they brought out on this huge platter a fish. I mean, you could see the whole thing. An entire fish. Yeah, the head, the tail, the eyes, everything. And they, you know, they cut into it and they served it to us. And, you know, I don't think they were people of great means. And I just looked at that and thought, how in the heck am I going to eat this? I I just didn't know if I could do it. Because, you know, it would be one thing if they served it and they took the fish away, but we were eating it in front of the fish. (laughs) So I was like, Really horrified. Eating and it part was of the looking fish at me. in front of the rest of the, 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 rest <laughs> yeah, of the fish. Yeah, it's a little I bit like it. lobster when they look at you, although I have no problem eating lobster. But anyway, that was one time when I was horrified to have to eat food, and it was it did not taste good to me. And it's funny because I grew up eating fish, but that was not the kind of fish I'd ever eaten. And I don't remember what kind it was, but it was horrible. And I just tried to eat a little tiny bit and say thank you over and over again. But you know, that's hard. Um, steamed clams, I'm not a fan of. Oysters, sardines, those kinds of things. I'm just, those are just foods I don't like. And I never understood the joy of eating a steamed clam and letting it kind of float down your throat. You uh, love it. I got no problems there. Yeah, <laughs> that I don't. 
You know, one of the things that's happened over COVID, and as we're talking about food, I just wanted to mention this, is so interesting. You know, we're not huge travelers, but we have traveled a bit. And I figured, you know, if you can't go to the country where you want to visit, maybe you should try new foods from different countries. And that kind of has an adventure feel to it. And I don't know if you as listeners have done that before, but um, you can go to Ethiopia, you can go to India, you can go to Thailand, you can go to China, you can go to Japan, you can go to Greece. All of those things are places that you can go to by eating the food. Now, we're not talking about experiencing Mexican food by going to Taco Bell. Right. We're talking about proprietors who are from or who stick pretty closely to traditional, authentic recipes from these countries. And I got to say, it's been great fun for me. Yeah, yeah. Now, you're not a huge fan of Ethiopian food, but there's a gomen and ambasha you can have. Those are wonderful. And yeah, I was not a fan of that particular, you know, part of the world food-wise, but others I've really enjoyed. Yeah, like Indian, which we actually had tonight before we recorded this. We had biryani and you had shai korma. Shai korma. Um, we love that. Thai food, pad thai, pad siu, Chinese food. Beef and broccoli. Now, I have heard that the Chinese food that Americans eat is way different than actual Chinese food. And we have not been to um, Chinatown in New York City. And I think that's a little more authentic, don't you? Probably bigger cities uh, overall are going to score a little higher in the authenticity rankings when it comes to Chinese food. And that one's probably a tough one. Yeah, I think so. I think what we're getting for Chinese food is like... We may be misled, is all I'm saying. <laughs> so, um, sushi, you know, Greek food, pasticcio, tiropita, that kind of stuff is wonderful. So those are just to name a few. And so if you're not a foodie and you're not adventurous, you should give it a try. Get out there and kind of see what's new. and Explore the world with your stomach leading you. What do we do when we feed our grands something they don't like? Like, we have things that we don't like, um, necessarily. You just mentioned Ethiopian food that you don't particularly like. You know, I had our granddaughter over, uh, like, a week or so ago, and I was eating something leftover from, uh, I think it was an Italian restaurant. And she looked at it, and she said, Oh, well, I won't yuck another person's yum. <laughs> but she <laughs> obviously did not like the look of what I was eating, but she was so sweet to say that. So my question is, how do we teach our grands to decline food politely? I get my feelings hurt a lot when I cook to show love, and then they say to me out loud, oh, I don't like that. That's yucky. Oh, that looks gross. That smells gross or whatever. And I I have had to learn, and this is one of my this is one of my goals over Thanksgiving was to detach myself from thinking that if they're not eating my food, they don't love me because I like to cook to show love. So when they turn something down or they turn their noses up, I get my feelings hurt a little bit. But and it, but it's a process, right? Yeah, it's partly me learning how to detach and not get my feelings hurt. And it's partly them learning how to um, say something in a more polite way. So um, maybe we suggest to them, say, maybe parents, the adult parents suggest this. Maybe we do. I'm curious what you do as listeners. What do you say to your grandchild when they say, 
I don't like that. That's yucky. That smells gross. And I mean, even before you've sat down to eat, they're say, they're making judgments about the food that you're eating. Can we maybe teach them to say, Grandma, I'm not hungry for that. Do you have something else I could eat instead? Like, I don't have a problem if they want a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or a cheese quesadilla. But I do have a problem when they start, like, dissing what I'm making. You know, it strikes me that this skill may be one that um, more modern young families don't have the opportunity to practice as much because, you know, at least pre-pandemic, there wasn't as much cooking happening at home. Yeah. And they're also really, really busy because a lot of these couples are dual income and they don't have time. They're both working. dual I should say dual career, whatever you want to call that. So, so there's a lot of ordering in. Yeah. And there's more choosing to sort of meet an individual child's um, appetites Palette. and interests. Right. Yeah. And there's not as much time to teach what they're supposed to do. Maybe we need to learn ourselves even, no, thank you, I've had enough, or maybe compliment the chef by saying, you know, that was a great meal. I, I'm glad I tried that. I've never had it before. So you're not basically saying, I hate it or it's awful. But I think when I ate that fish, that was what I had to say was, no, thank you, I've had enough. But it was wonderful. And I'm so glad I tried it. And I've never had that before. That was kind of where I had to go with that. So I'm wondering if that can be trained for all of us. We all need to learn how to say no thank you in a nice way. My father-in-law's wife always said, no thank you, I've dined sufficiently. That's what she would say when she didn't want any more, and she'd tell us we had to say that. But she said it in a different accent. She did. How did it sound? Oh, you're asking me to imitate? No thank you, I've dined sufficiently. (laughs) Love it. <laughs> um, as opposed to what I said to your dad, which was, well, you can ask me if I want more, but I'm not going to eat it, <laughs> which was so rude. I, I, I mean, I was in my 20s, so I've... Yeah, I don't think we were married yet when no, that happened. He got a kick out of it, but I just... He, he I loved think it. I mentioned that in the podcast once before, but anyway, he thought it was hilarious. He learned from this you were a, an extreme straight shooter. <laughs> yeah, but I probably could have done better. Anyway, however you express yourself, make sure that you thank the cook after a meal. Because as you know, if you've ever cooked a meal, it's a lot of work, and the chef deserves a high five or a thank you or a hug or all of the above. As we're thinking about food and our adult kids and grands, I want you to think back on how you experience the food you make or are served in your household. How do you celebrate your own food cultures? Maybe you had some traditions you are passing down, or maybe you had to create your own. I mean, for most of us, combining food traditions can be a stretch all its own. In today's The Stretch It Takes, I recognize that melding two households and their food traditions can make for some interesting combos. So let's go to the mat and consider how we can stay flexible in preparing and serving the food that both honors our traditions and introduces new ones. My husband and I come from two different food cultures. While that may sound dramatic, since we both grew up in the United States, it really isn't. He grew up in Kentucky, and I grew up in New Hampshire. Just think about that for a minute. We grew up 1,166.4 miles away from each other. That's like someone from London marrying someone who grew up in Finland. 
or someone from London marrying someone who grew up in Bulgaria or Hungary. Those places are equally as far apart, and yet it seems reasonable that because a couple lives in the United States, we all might share similar food traditions. Of course, that is not so. When we got married, my mother-in-law presented me with a box of my husband's favorite recipes carefully typed out on her IBM Selectric. Recipes included Mike's favorite tuna casserole, Mother Bell's biscuits, frozen salad with Bing cherries, and English muffin bread. Now, Mike's mom was a home economics major in college, and she could make a great spread. But at that time, I looked at those recipes and felt saddled with the weight of expectation. I was not a great cook. By the time I was in junior high, my mother was pretty much done with cooking. If we had desserts, it was because I baked them from a box mix. Being the youngest, I was the only one home by the time I was in my teens, and so we ate out most of the time, and when we didn't, it was simple meat and vegetables for dinners. This should tell you something. I left home for college below my ideal weight, and when I came home after the first semester, I had gained 25 pounds. The college cafeteria might not have served good food, but it was plentiful, and I took full advantage of brown sugar Pop-Tarts slathered in butter for breakfast and large portions of lasagna and Italian bread when it was served on Thursdays. So when I got married, several years later, those recipes from Mike's mom looked daunting. I did some cooking at home, had perfected some cakes, cookies, and even popovers, but that was about it. As a result, I headed into marriage at 23 with little kitchen experience under my belt. But as luck would have it, I found that I was pretty good at cooking, but not the kind that my husband was used to. Our first Thanksgiving with his family before we were married was a real eye-opener. I had never had turkey gravy with giblets and hard-boiled egg slices floating in it. I didn't even recognize the seasonings in the stuffing, and when it came to dessert, I was treated to something called boiled custard. Two things to know at this point. First, I came from a background where alcohol wasn't consumed. And second, my roommate in grad school had just had a terrible bout of salmonella poisoning as a result of drinking eggnog made with raw eggs. So that was a real stretch for me to drink boiled custard that was made with raw eggs and a generous splash of bourbon. Let's face it, when couples get married, the menu inevitably expands, and this requires a stretch. It's like melding two food DNAs together. Before we actually had babies, we kind of had a food baby, one that resembled both sets of DNA, one that meant that we might have grandmother's yeast rolls on the Thanksgiving table, but instead of boiled custard, a New England custard pie. A table that included fish chowder on Christmas Eve, and then a cake his family called chocolate mistake cake for dessert. I mean, that's the stretch. To combine both families' food traditions into new ones that meet the needs of both husband and wife. Actually, I don't think it would be a bad idea to include that in the wedding vows. Do you promise to consider your spouse's food likes and dislikes and combine your meals so that both parties get some of what they want? Hopefully, each will say, I do, followed by, pass the plate, for as long as they both shall live.
One of the best parts of doing a podcast is knowing that after you listen, it spurs you and your family on to have conversations about whatever topic we're discussing. So how does your family deal with the food differences from each brand of the family tree? I would love to hear from you. It's what keeps me going with the podcast. So please send me a note at grandlifeconnection at gmail.com or leave me a voicemail at 317-572-7876. Have a wonderful holiday season. I'm Emily Morgan. And I'm Mike Morgan. And thanks for joining us in Living the Grand Life. Next time on the Grand Life Podcast. How many grandchildren do you have? We have 21 now and three, three on, on the way. way. So 24. <laughs> we had to add on a big family room just to have the physical space for everyone to run around. Because <laughs> a week with everyone here was just too much. <laughs> That's next time on the Grand Life Podcast. <laughs>